Wait for it. Wait for it. And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just a couple of nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. But uh, without further ado, let's dive into it, because today we're talking all about why space is the place. And if you notice uh, Nick Garber's lovely art of space rangerhood, and you read the title, you know we're here to talk about space rangers and the future of spec ops. Uh, mostly in sci-fi settings, so lots of hand waving and because reasons. Because uh, reasons. So your imagination is the only limit. And with that being said, we're going to go round robin. We're going to start at Rick because we're just going to go in order of the of little Brady Bunch square. Rick, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers and I am Rick Partlow. Um, I am a <clears throat> former light infantry platoon leader. I write military science fiction and I have about 62 books currently published. A couple more on the way. I live in Wyoming. That's about it. He goes to True story. Uh, and only, only that many books. I mean, she's such an underachiever. But all right, Jeff, uh, you are next. Can you introduce yourself to our viewing audience? It's been a while since we've had you on, sir. Yeah, it's been, um, I think, since I launched Grimm's War. So I'm Jeffrey H. Haskell. I'm the author of the military sci-fi epic Grimm's War, which is up to six books now. And I'm working on book seven, um, available where all fine books are sold, except <laughs> it's not. It's just Amazon and Audible. Um, I also have a couple other superhero series that I've written over the years that are really great, too. I, I am a former Army and I was signal. I wasn't infantry. I didn't. I didn't have that distinction of of. Um, I, they took. An, I took an IQ test and I scored too high, so they said I couldn't be infantry. Uh, so. <laughs> uh, the um, I've been writing since two thousand and well, I've been writing my whole life, but I've been publishing since two thousand and sixteen. And uh, my first book I I published was picked up by Kindle Scout, and my second book was a USA Today bestseller. And yeah, the rest is history. I've been writing ever since. Nice, nice. And uh, if I understand correctly, didn't you like shine the boots at the Rangers for their like IT department or something once upon a time? I taught the Rangers how to use the Singar radios back in the day. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. Uh, I thought you had the Prick 77 when you were in. Man, I did. I, I had to. We switched over to the Singar while I was in. And, and that was um, when I was in training. We About halfway through training, we were getting trained on the Pricks. And... <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> Phrasing. And, I need a uh, eight over here soon. Then they came in. They came in. You, I don't know if you guys ever went to Georgia for at Fort Gordon, but they had these like I guess they have them everywhere too. But they had those trailers you're in when you get your training, and they've got the AC that's never on. And they came in and like it's really loud. Like who here is under nineteen? And you know, three of us raised our hand. He's like, okay, you, you, and you, you're going to a different school. And we went from the PRC combat signal course to the to the. Singar combat signal, of course. And the air conditioning worked in the Singars? <laughs> nope. Okay. And then females always wanted the windows closed because apparently 101 degrees with 100% humidity in Georgia was quote-unquote too cold. Funny story. What? I never learned about Singars. Like, they, they tried to teach it to us a little bit in IOBC, but then when I got to my unit, we were still using Prick 77, so I never learned to use them. Yeah, that's, that had, was my job exclusively was going around to different units, transitioning them from the uh, from the PRCs to the Singars. 
So yeah, we did the Singars exclusively when I was in, and then we had the the was it Blue Force trackers and all the digital comm stuff that never worked and overheated all the time. Singars worked flawlessly. If the Singar yeah. failed, it was because of you. Yeah, it's operator error. Yeah, we had one that survived a couple sandstorms, um, but the other equipment didn't. But the 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 Singar did. Without that being said, uh, we won't talk about comms with Doc Spears because he was of the era where you had the tin cans, you tied it together, and you hoped it worked. And if you didn't, you just climbed uphill both ways to stab a mofo. True story. Not I heard even it. tin cans. Yeah, you know, like there's another way. You I mean, talk some animals, which I know you can do. Diplomacy. You just named your guns piece of diplomacy. Uh, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself, Doc. But can you introduce yourself to the guests? Uh, hey, John Spears, uh, aka Doc. Uh, my, you know, the interesting part of my life started. I was a special forces operator. Spent my years in the Seventh Special Forces Group. Uh, you know, splitting my time between Central and South America and counterinsurgency and counter narco-terrorism in the 80s and 90s, and then was a government contractor. I was an orthopedic spine surgeon for almost 20 years. And during all that time, I stayed as a contractor uh, working for, uh, for agencies, training, tactics, weapons, assaulter and sniper skills. Uh, I'm a director for Forge Tactical, who we train law enforcement, special operations, and uh, and DOD customers. I'm still a, a frequent contractor for the U.S. Army, uh, the Warrior Training Center down at Camp, well, Fort Liberty, used to be Fort Benning. I, I still trip on all of that, but uh, yeah, so I'm down, I'm down there and visiting the sniper school, and I get to be a uh, occasional guest speaker down at the sniper school. I'm a plank holder of the U.S. Army Sniper School uh, back from the inaugural inaugural year of 1987. So that carries some currency uh, down there, but it's a great time to get down and, and, and see those great guys and what they're doing at the schoolhouse. And then, of course, I write as well. So, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of books out for Galaxy's Edge and for Wargate and, you know, a lot more uh, a lot more in the pipe that are, you know, just hanging out there in uh, in release date limbo waiting waiting to uh waiting to get posted on amazon and audible so merry christmas not sure why i'm here so i'm gonna go ahead and go now since you've got this covered oh, with uh, i have been out hood thank you very much again john pleasure to see you sir uh, i don't care what the army calls it these days it's always the uh forbidding school for boys for me uh i grew up there yeah. it was my I, I don't i'm it's always going to be fort benning oh yeah you can call it whatever you want, Fort, but it's like Fort, it's like Fort Fort uh, Fort yeah. Moore, Fort Liberty, Fort Cavazos. It's like I'm all you know. Yeah, I even I even just mixed it up. Of course, Benning is Fort Moore after Halmar, which that makes perfect sense. I don't understand why Bragg didn't like become like you know like you know Fort, Fort Ferry. You know, there's a million guys. It could have been you know. Ridgeway, it could have been, you know, Murphy, Audie Murphy, Gavin. It could have been, it could have been anything else like that. Well, Audie was third that, that makes no sense, but, but yeah, whatever. But, well, okay, we got Kent McCall is still the same. Yeah, so far. McCall. Well, 
Speaking of uh, things always changing, uh, we made the joke that started this episode, Nick and I, when um, he was giving my nephew some advice about a future army career because he's decided he doesn't like turning wrenches in the garden. He wants to go do hua hua shit stuff. I told him to go Air Force. <laughs> he said, be a cook in the Air Force. You'll kill more people. Excellent advice. That's <laughs> the advice people that way. anybody who asks. It's like, what branch should I think about? Go to the Air Force. Coast Guard. Do you like your joints and knees? He said a real military branch, though, Joe. Hey, so <laughs> while I was in Montana in 1993 fighting forest fires, my friend Jen Collins, who I went to high school with, was on the deck of her Coast Guard cutter off the coast of Columbia manning a 50 cal lighting up drug dealers. So, Coast Guard. Yeah. Well, I'll, you know, I worked with a lot of those guys. What most people don't know, of course, is you know, uh, Coast Guard NCOs, warrants, and officers are sworn uh, customs agents. You know, they're federal law enforcement agents. You know, yeah, they have threads and everything. And, you know, I can remember I was teaching at the Blackwater uh, uh, facility, you know, back when it was Blackwater. And, you know, of course, they've got a lot of lakes there and stuff like that where they practice vbss and it's all full of coast guard guys and that was like in the mid 2000s where like i first you know got hip to the idea that like yeah the, those dudes do more vbss you know in the gulf and uh, the southern atlantic than like anybody else does and they're like credentialed customs agents and those dudes are i mean they're like in they're they're like at it real world, like every day, like day in and day out. So yeah, definitely. Coast Guard is no joke. I think the, those dudes do some cool stuff. And actually it's like, I've worked with their snipers before in the, the Hitron mission, super cool mission. So long and short, there are some very cool things that you could do in the Coast Guard. But and on top of that, it's a lot oh, easier to stay in. Up. And she's oh, like a yeah. E7 or E8 now, and she's about to retire. And, you know, with us who were doing stuff, we got four four to six years in and our knees are killing us and our back's killing us. And we're like, I'm done with this crap. And then you have our that JR's case getting blown up a couple of times. Yeah. Uh, you have that epiphany where like, crap, I'd have retired right now if I'd stayed yeah. in. Like, this would be my retirement. But uh, when, we, when he was given that advice, the discussion of the U.S. Space Force soldier, airman, whatever, Guardian, I guess. I don't know. Who knows Guardian. what they call themselves. The Guardians. Are they called Guardians? Yes, are they yeah. really? Yeah. They yeah. they really oh, needed to have someone less um, stupid, more testosterone running in his manhood to uh, have picked a better name for them. I'm trying to be considerate because I know you want your kids to be able to listen to this episode, Jeff. Well, they but, had to choose between Defenders of the Earth or Guardians of the Galaxy. I reject both of them. <laughs> I, mean, I would have just gave them all Navy ranks. They should have gone with Navy ranks. Yeah, I mean, yeah. eventually they're going to be in boats up there anyway, so... But so you guys are fleet, you're Starfleet now. You got the same symbol and everything. But so because of that, we realized that there was something there for a topic about space rangers. And then that's alone is a joke, right? Buzz Lightyear jokes inserted here. Uh, (laughs) But with that, we started Nick and I were brainstorming and we realized we've talked about the future of warfare in general, but we haven't specifically targeted what special operations might mean in a far future kind of setting. So we gathered people who have done some things and got dirt under their nails, and we figured we'd have a fun chat about it. And uh, so first off, how much of the temperament of what makes someone a good uh, tip of the spear kind of soldier do you think is going to change 
with the evolution of like super weapons and equipment. It won't. The the mentality still needs to be the same. You got to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You got to find a way to win. 90% of special operations and what we do is all brain power. So I, I kind of laugh be, when be, being capable of hurry up and hurry up and wait for days or weeks at a time and then suddenly be popped off somebody somewhere is going to come in handy whether it's you know sitting on an air in an airfield and you know the middle east or sitting on a spaceship somewhere i'm a science guy so i I really approach everything from a technology point of view because technology dictates tactics all the time um and for the most part when new technology comes out people try to work it so that it comes it fits into the mold that we're already we're already familiar with. You know, Lockheed's got that new laser they're putting on ships, and it's basically going to act like a sea whiz, but a laser. Um, so a lot of that, a lot of like what they'll do mission wise and stuff like that will depend on tactics. But I don't think the the intestinal fortitude required to to do the stuff that special operations does wouldn't any way change um, human wise. I don't see how it could you know, based on, on, on what some of these things they have to do, uh, the things they have to do. I mean, you can't, you can't be, it's not, um, an egalitarian system. It's, it's pass fail. And if you fail, you die. So. Okay. So what technology do you see, since you mentioned you're the science guy, do you see coming into play for, for the future? I mean, obviously any technology, that they're going to need spec ops generically is going to be the same technology, the average grunt or sailor. Cause fundamentally in space, I imagine you're going to have fighting troops, a lot like a Marine Corps kind of deal in transportation ship type people, space fleet, whatever the kind of troops generically that all of them are need is going to be the same because the environments are going to be the same. So what would be the next level equipment you would think for someone operating at the highest level? This might be a better question for Doc since he's familiar with all he's the things. He's written a few books now. on it. Should have just read one of his books on air for an hour. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, uh, have you ever played? There was this. Uh, there was this old game, a Tom Clancy game called Ghost Recon that came out years ago. I think oh, that new version, yeah. of it, but but the Advanced Warfighter. And one of the neat things they did about it was, is they went and they looked at all the stuff that was like cutting edge, like Ruthie and Ruthie and Palmer and stuff like that, and they they threw it all into the game. You know. When I was in the army in the '90s, they were talking about the future soldier. Do you guys remember the future soldier program? Oh yeah, that with the with the XKs so and the the heads up displays and stuff like that. And that's all fine and well, but I mean, at the end of the day, you got to be able to throw something on the ground, stomp on it, and have it still work. And so the more Give advanced, to the Rangers will figure that out for you. Yeah, the more advanced something is, the harder it is. I remember meeting um, when I was at Fort Lewis. I remember meeting a bunch of special forces guys because they were doing recruiting, and I was PFC at the time, so I couldn't you know, join, but, um, also I wouldn't have made it because it turns out that people over six foot don't usually make it through special forces training because it's just so much harder on you. But, uh, these guys were all, you know, five, eight, five, nine, five, ten, real rugged. And they had all their guns out that they used on this table. Cause it was like, you know, it was like a demonstration thing. Like, you know, send the people through so they can see what it's like. And I remember looking at their guns and I'm fairly familiar with guns at the time. And I'm like, that's an STG 44 and that's a grease gun. Um, why are you guys using those? And like, well, because you can get parts for them anywhere and they never break. <laughs> and I always remember that. So parts for an SCP-44 anywhere? 
Yeah, that's what the guy said at the time. And he could get. I don't. I don't think so. And, um, probably in the warehouse where they keep the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, um, that's yeah, why you didn't see a lot of army guys pick up uh, German STG 44s during World War II, is because they couldn't get ammo or spare parts for them anywhere because there were so few of them. Yeah, but the 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 P38s and the you know the grease guns. Yeah. You know. Um, they're super simple and they're easy to machine parts for. Um, but I kind of look at it as, as, as like, what are the missions they're going to be doing and, and what technology would, would happen that allow them to, to do that? You know, cloaking, cloaking outfits, you know, adaptive camouflage, uh, thermal dampening, you know, far, far in excess of what we have now. Uh, environmental suits. Um, I know with my guys that I, that I did the OD, um, ODA, team that I have in my in my books their their uniforms are also armor they, they absorb you know they absorb the impact and spread it out over the whole body stuff like that is uh you know clothes that keep you warm and cool you know something simple as that makes a huge difference um I don't know I was in Alaska I served in Alaska and we had to have the bear suits and the Mickey Mouse boots and and um I'd give anything for for an outfit that was just normal sized and just kept me warm as it was. So there's a lot of little things like that I think will make a huge difference and allow special forces guys in the future to operate in different environments around the you know galaxy. Um, but essentially be doing the same missions, you know, infill, recon, extracts, stuff like that. One of the first uh, most successful books that I ever wrote was called Glory Boy, and it was it was about uh, a special operations team in the far future, like you know, 400 years from now or whatever. And uh, <clears throat> basically I crammed every kind of high tech thing I could think of or had read about into, into these guys. And uh, they were uh, cybernetically enhanced. They had like, um, it was something that I invented called Biomer, which is like a, biological electric reactive polymer like grown in a lab they uh, implanted it over their regular muscles and under their skin so they were stronger and more resistant to damage and they wore suits over over of it you know as armor because you could run an electric current through it and it would harden selectively so it served as like an exoskeleton sort of as well as armor and it was also like uh, chameleon camouflage and uh, basically, they cost, you know, as much as a spaceship, each of these guys. And uh, they had all the uh, bells and whistles. They dropped them on planets in these stealth pods that were coated in, you know, re sensor re absorbent material, had them go behind enemy lines and things like that. So that was the most high tech uh, stuff that I put into any of the books with special forces type people. So, so what about you, doc? I know you wrote the dark operator, which was the special operations um, well, the tier above special operations really in the galaxy's edge universe. And you've written those kind of characters in your other books. So what do you think the future of that looks like if you had to, uh, if you had to sort of try to condense it down? Well, and bear in mind, we're all stealing this for our next book. So choose your words carefully. <laughs> <laughs> it breaks down in a couple of different ways and you know and it's not been different 
throughout the history of warfare, you know, trying to define um, special operations. Um, in the modern context, what's what's developed in the last 30 years is, you know, is delineating out the different kinds of special operations based on the units that perform them. And it breaks down basically into two groups. There's special operations forces and there's special forces. Special operations forces, primarily, if you're thinking of the direct action elements, and let's let's break it down into like the army component, is of course like is 75th, right? And and direct action elements. If you're looking at special operations and the subset of that, which is done by special forces. Now you've opened that up into the full spectrum, uh, which becomes, you know, all the core missions and, and it'll, and this will build up and you'll understand why is, you know, UW unconventional warfare, which is the key mission. And then kind of the flip side of that is, uh, counterinsurgency and foreign internal defense. Then you got all of the other kind of softer special forces missions, special reconnaissance or strategic reconnaissance, civil affairs support, intelligence missions, counterterrorism, you know, counterproliferation missions for weapons and mass destructions. And that's like the whole panoply, the full spectrum of what special forces brings to the table. So now when are these different, you know, special operations forces used currently and how will that evolve into what we like to imagine the future is going to be? Special forces are used primarily when there is a human terrain to negotiate that's a primary part of the mission versus there are strategic or tactical level objectives, hard objectives, which are solved through direct action missions. So let's think about this in, you know, in our, in our, in our preferred future, you know, however many years ahead. If we're going through a period of time where we don't have... Um, we don't have other planets colonized to the point where they have developed into different polities, right? We're past the stage of colonialization, right? The, 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 the planet colonies have developed their own unique cultures, and now they have broken away from whatever Earth government seeded that colony and they are their own distinct polity, now becomes the situation where how might an Earth futuristic special operations force be put into play as foot soldiers of their government's foreign policy, right? Unconventional warfare is basically the mission of where you're enhancing or you're enabling a insurgency force or a revolutionary force to overthrow 
their own government, right? And that is the core special forces mission upon which everything else branches from. So that's why you have that full skill set of working in urban environments, in rural environments of, you know, all your different methods of infiltration, all your sexy, you know, scuba and halo and hey-ho and and other kind of crazy stuff. And what's that going to look like? You know, I write a lot about like, you know, orbital and suborbital infiltration, you know, which is essentially like halo or hey-ho, you know, as a way to get on site. But then it's going to be the same thing is like, you know, the converse of that when you have, you know, either it's like, say, you have colonies on other worlds that are that are still linked to us as a polity. Do they have neighboring planets or on that same planet? Are there other polities that are client states of our enemies, you know, are, are our special forces working to destabilize the the other polities, the client states of our enemies on that world? You know, are are we looking to you know uh, destabilize a planetary government on another planet to make our sector more stable and friendly? Our polity and the way that we want to control things and you know that's where special forces come into play short of that if we're in a period of you know it's like i say just that that diaspora where we're exploring space and you're going to have to have special special tools and tactics and capabilities to to like you know do vbss in space you know, and things like that, you know, it just depends upon how you want to define things. Some of those will be bread and butter missions for like space Marines. Some of them, depending upon, you know, are there hostages involved or there, you know, is, are there special materials that have to be recovered? That's going to fade more into what would require a more specialized, truly special operations force who has the training and the capability and the support to be able to pull off those kind of missions, you know? So, so, you know, two, two basic, you know, direct action, unconventional warfare, special operations forces versus special forces. And if it's hard to understand, that's okay. We've got an entire department of defense who doesn't understand it. You know, every time like, you know, DOD has tried to say like, well, you know, what a special forces really do, you know, then you have the kickoff of Afghanistan and basically two A-teams and a handful of ground branch guys secure the entire country, you know, in about a month and see the new president. And they say, oh, yeah, I guess that's what special forces does, you know, or you look at like the only the, the recently declassified Dead A Berlin, special forces Dead A Berlin that spent damn near 30 years, you know, doing unconventional warfare prep all throughout Eastern Europe for, you know, when the Russians finally went for the full the gap, unconventional operations would have essentially, you know, destroyed their ability to wage war from behind their lines. And you say, oh yeah, that's what special forces does, you know? 
you know, it takes language ability. It takes it takes uh, uh, you know cross cultural communications ability on top of all of those other skills that it takes to be able to get there and do the job. So I mean, like I say, in the future, when it gets to the point where we're truly dealing with you know planets that have different governments and different ways of doing things, then it's just going to be on a grand scale, exactly what we deal with now on one planet where we have, you know, overt enemies and client states who are enemies all over the globe who we constantly work against. You know, and that's the it doesn't matter if the balloons up. It doesn't matter if guys are getting combat patches and CIBs or not. Special Forces guys are out there doing that mission somewhere in some country, everywhere in the world, every day of the week. And it's been that way since about 1958. And that's what it'll look like in the future. So before we dive into the commercial, um, and we're going to have all of you sponsor this episode so generously, thank you from our uh, from our listeners and viewers. You mentioned communication was part of what you would be doing as special forces, even in the future. So what would that look like if you encountered either disconnected human races that don't speak languages we recognize or alien races that don't speak any, any languages we recognize? What does communication look like? Because special forces would be the tip of the spear. I'm thinking along the lines of what the Green Berets did in Vietnam, where they were interfacing with the local indigenous tribes that were potentially resistant to the North Vietnamese. How does that happen when you don't have a base of language? What would that be? Yeah, you know, it's great conjecture. And that's exactly the kind of stuff I've touched on that and some scenarios and books and, you know, and you, and technology is hopefully going to solve a lot of that for us. You know, hopefully it's nothing as obtuse as like the, you know, Picard, you know, like, you know, uh, poopy pants on the river. Oh Lord. You know, I mean, that would technology ain't going to solve that one, but for everything else. Yeah. We're definitely going to look at technology. Look how close we are right now. I mean, it's actually here right now where your iPhone can be a live, you know, translation device both ways you know? you know i've used that i actually work with a guy who's from uh who's from a uh, uh, french colonized africa uh and he uh it, it's crap <laughs> it, it does not it does not tra- like half this he I'll, I'll translate i'll say something and i'll look at him and he'll look at this and he's like oh you know, yeah. because it doesn't, it, have, it doesn't have idiom very well. Yeah, it doesn't handle like, idioms. It doesn't AI's handle our sentence structure. Have that knocked out. You know, it's probably I think, uh, not it knocked out. I think a lot in the future you're going to have the same sort of situation we have now, where you have people who are from different cultures serving. You know, like for instance, in in my books, you know, the 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 main you know good guy nation, so to speak, is multicultural, and they have a lot of different plans with a lot of different you know. Um, you know, there's a planet that was colonized by people from East Asia and a planet that was colonized by people from Southwest America and a planet colonized by, you know, people from Mexico. And it so, you're, sense. You're, yeah, it does. Right. It's like it's not like you're going to it's not like you're living in Texas. You're going to go colonize a planet with a bunch of people from Maine. You, you, you stick to your groups. And so you're going to end up with people who speak whatever languages that are available. And now I've run into instances where I have worked it out so that there was drift like lingual drift. And I talked to a bunch of linguists and asked them how it happens and what kind of distance you need. And, and since there is an FTL in my worlds, then. Are they cunning linguists? 
<laughs> and, you know, there, there, there's definitely a problem where at one point the Marines were on board an enemy ship and they're like, well, where do we go? And the one person who spoke the language is like, well, I mean, I spoke the language that they spoke 400 years ago. I don't necessarily speak the language that they speak now. So that's all. I don't really get into that too much in most of my books because um, my future histories take place in a future where uh, a lot of the different power blocks in the world got blown up. So pretty much everybody speaks English as their main language, like the trade language and the enemy. Uh, we are not infiltrating the enemy because they look nothing like us. So basically we get by with Google translate type stuff for, for their, their language, just to read their instructions. It's not really a, they're, they're very realistic. They're very realistic problems, you know, and they're things it doesn't even really take that many generations. I mean, look at Italian as an example. I wish, you know, Walt Roblard was here. I mean, he speaks Sicilian, you know, which is, which is not Italian at all, but, uh, you know, it's like Americans who immigrated from Italy pre-World War II, depending upon the region of Italy they're from, they all speak a different version of Italian than each other that they learned in those years. And people from that generation or subsequent second or third generations who learned Italian from within their own family go to Italy and are not well understood because modern Italian was standardized, you know, I believe it was in the 1950s, and it doesn't represent any one of those regional languages. Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of that depends in your future histories, whether or not you have um, any kind of faster than light communications. Because nowadays, I mean, people in the U.S. used, used to be have a lot, lot more varied and almost understandable dialects but the age of television and movies you know you you find a lot of especially younger people have a kind of a you know not really any accent california type of accent you know because they they make an whoa, effort whoa, not whoa, to whoa, whoa. We got an accent. <laughs> um but i think that if you have um people who have the 24th century equivalent of the internet, you know, and are all sharing the same dialect, you could, you could wind up with different, you know, um, slang and, you know, Absolutely. patois. In, in well, like, yeah. Could you imagine getting a communication from a teenager, from teenager speak? Like, yo, this firefight busting, yo, dead ass, no cap. <laughs> I have no idea you know, what you just said other than a firefight. I unfortunately do understand what he said. Teenagers. Only if that teenager had never been trained by anybody. But when it comes to right, trying to figure out uh, specialized military operations in you know in, in human terrain where navigating the culture is essential, oh, it's going to be a big deal. There's no question about it, just like it is now. Yeah. That's I've not got one main. of my... One but of my technology will, will help. What you're am still I, what going am I to have here? to understand the nuances of the culture. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to take a deep dive in area studies 
before you deploy to that region. Mission planning and mission prep and mission training is going to be is going to be, you know, just as much of a nightmare as it is sometimes now, you know, uh, uh, it's like everything, you know, it's like there, there's no just like spin up and run and go do it. Not in those kind of operations. So you were about to say something, Jeff, there seems a little bit of a lag with you. So I'm, I'm cutting some space oh. so you can say what you wanted to. Sorry. Uh, I'm at somebody else's house. So that's the why the Wi-Fi probably sucks. No, I was just saying is that uh, as Doc knows, because he was in it, ODA is, you know, specialized in certain parts of their world, right? So he was specialized in South America, which means you probably were in Nicaragua in the late 80s, I imagine. Um, but uh, he's going to answer. Yeah, he's not going to answer. <laughs> well, well, the, I'll talk that I'll talk about. Is but, um, I was with the first group of Americans into Honduras in 1983. And what we were doing at that time is we were doing strategic reconnaissance to aid a engineer brigade in establishing sites where we were building clandestine airfields all over the Honduran side of the Honduran-Nicaraguan border. Hey, Doc. We're going across the border into Nicaragua along likely avenues, uh, uh, high-speed avenues of attack from Nicaragua to help the engineers set up sites to build tank traps to keep. Hey, Doc, you wouldn't happen to know a Colonel Froberg, would you? <laughs> yes, I do. I knew him very well. He was my oh, battalion wow. commander at 3 7 in 86, 87, and 88. He went on to be, I mean, if it's the same guy, he went on to be a, a college ROTC a professor of military science. Yep, which was very, which is pretty common. SF, uh, senior SF officers and SF NCOs, you know, especially guys who were getting away from a command track. That was a, that was like a, he was my, he was my, he was my uh, PMS in ROTC. Yeah, he's a, he's a outstanding guy. Ali Garcia was his sergeant major who was a SOG guy, you know, who uh, ran hatchet teams you know, with SOG. And that was like, that was the generation above me. You know, at one time, the guys who I had with me, uh, you know, based out of Panama, who we did the El Salvador, Colombia, Bolivia, Peru missions constantly. Every, you know, all those senior guys were all SOG or Dead A or SOG and Dead A, Blue Light, guys who would bounce back and forth to CAG and stuff like that. It was real, it was a real cool group of guys to be, you know, to be like their their boy and to like learn from back in those days. But yeah, yeah, I knew Froberger pretty, pretty well. He was a great commander. So speaking of uh, greatness, uh, we've got you three volunteering your uh, your current projects as the sponsors of this episode. So Rick, what's the current thing you've got selling that you want to pimp out to our listeners and readers and viewers? Well, uh, by the time this comes out, I think Drop Trooper 14 collateral effects will be will have come out recently. So uh, that that would be the one that I would uh, encourage people to take a look at if they're a, if they're a fan of the Drop Trooper series. Okay. All right. What about you, Jeff? This is coming out on the 20th of no, uh, December. So people are getting ready for Christmas and they, they need the next big read. Well, if you've, if you've read my series and a grim decision came out uh, October 10th and it's, you know, 4.7 stars on Amazon and it's selling really well. If you haven't read my series, start with against all odds because why else, why would you not start with book one? 
And against all odds is gets you into the universe with Commander Jacob Grimm and the crew of the USS Interceptor. Okay. What about you, Doc? What are you pimping these days? You've written like a hundred books since we last talked to you. So I know there's a lot to choose from. I wish I, I'm, a, I'm a total slacker compared to all these great guys. You know, you, everybody's got something going on all the time. Uh, Dark operator six from galaxy's edge, uh, the title Legionnaire eternal. I know it went into audible studios, uh, about two weeks ago because the voice actor like set the, set the uh the the publisher you know like hey can i have that pronunciation guide i go into the studio tomorrow morning you know it was like it was like almost midnight on a sunday night i go like oh yeah i'll knock that out for you uh so <laughs> so that's been the you know the galaxy's edge insiders have had that book for i think a few months and you know and it's it's been ready to roll i know that the that uh galaxy's edge just likes to have you know that Amazon is committed to the print version and of course has the Kindle version. And then they'd like to have the audible version all done so they can link all three, you know, when they release it on, uh, on, uh, Amazon, uh, so <coughs> by the time people are listening to this, that, you know, it's still a, it's still a two, three weeks away from when we've recorded this, hopefully that will be out. And then, uh, warlord four, uh, if you're into the Warlord series, which that's uh, kind of an homage, uh, John Carter of Mars, Special Forces A team, you know, ends up on Mars and that whole kind of kind of scene and how they deal with that. Uh, it lets you lets me bring a lot of very contemporary things uh, into that setting, which makes it a lot of fun. But Warlord Four will be out sometime, you know, early first of the year. You can check it out on DocSpears.com. Outstanding. All righty. We appreciate you sticking with us through that commercial interlude. If you are listening on the podcast only, you have gotten that uh, commercial break now. So welcome back. For everyone else, we're just going to keep talking. So we've talked a little bit about communication, what that might look like in the future, what kind of missions special forces might be asked to do. Uh, it's the consensus, it seems, that the more things change, the more they'll stay the same. So uh, only the toys will be different and everything else. Um, always was, always has been. Yeah, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, if you look at some of the police um, SWAT team tactics, aren't that different from what the Phalanx has used uh, when it comes to using their shields for crowd control and such. So I suppose I shouldn't have been surprised with that answer. I expected all of you to wow me with all the newness I had never heard of, though. So uh, instead, <laughs> we will talk a little bit about the culture that we will inhabit in these units. So obviously not everyone writing in these fictional futures are going to have direct parallels to uh, existing nation states in the world as it is now. When they write them, do you think it's uh, important to honor the heritage of the units that came before, even if it's not the right nation? Or do you think people should sort of make something up entirely new for their worlds? Well, I think that if you want to be successful in writing military science fiction, you would better stick to... If you call your unit Marines, they're going to want you to, to have the exact rank structure and command structure of modern-day U.S. Marines. And if you don't, they're going to get ticked off and they're going to yell at you. So, they're going to get pissed. Yeah. So, like, um, in, what, in my Drop Trooper novels, I say right away in book one that the, the Commonwealth Marine Corps is not – a direct descendant of the U.S. Marines. It's a like a 
coming together of U.S. Marines, British Royal Marines, uh, U.S. Airborne and Ranger units. It's like all of that came together for this unit. So some things are kind of Army and some things are kind of Marines. And people are like, oh, that's not right. This is like, this this rank should have been here. Like, no, this rank didn't exist in the Marine Corps as, early, as late as like the 1950s. So this 300 years from now, it's going to be different, but they will, you know, they, you will get yelled at if you deviate even slightly. So anyone who's listening to this, who thinks that the merging of military cultures doesn't create change, I challenge you to visit schools like the Citadel, VMI, Texas A&M, Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. I think there's a couple, someone in Georgia, these senior military colleges that are joint forces. North Georgia Military College is that yeah, Georgia you're... Military College is the one I'm thinking of, and there's a few a SUNY Maritime. Well, that's just mostly Navy and Coasty, so not really. But like those military colleges, you see because you've got enlisted and officer personnel to run those programs from all the services, and you watch the cultures merge, and suddenly you get Army guys calling it a parade deck instead of a parade ground, and I'm sure you get sailors calling it a latrine instead of the head. I mean, this stuff happens when you merge cultures. So. What about you, Jeff? Really what, what's your opinion? That, um, I, you know, I'm Army, but I, I write primarily Navy and Marine Corps, uh, though there is some Army guys in my books. And so because of that, I had to do a lot of research to get everything right. Uh, and by research, I mean, I like watched a lot of movies and read a lot of books. So it's stuff I would have done anyways. <laughs> but uh, I also talked to a lot of people who like, you know, you see those guys at Costco and they always got those Navy hats on, little World War II hats, Fletcher class destroyers and whatnot. And I always stop and ask those guys a ton of questions about what it was like to be on those ships. And, um, you know, you, you're not wrong. Rick's not wrong. I mean, like, like I messed up, um, you know, I, I've got multiple POVs in my book series. And, and one of the sub POVs is a group of Marines from a unit called Bravo 25. And I messed up calling a Lance Corporal a Corporal. And I had a couple of Marines email me like in the Marine Corps, we always use the full rank. They're always a Lance Corporal. They're never just a Corporal because in the Army, it's like you don't say Lieutenant Colonel, or at least when I was anyways, you don't say Lieutenant Colonel, you just say Colonel, you know, and, and or sir. That's or sir. what I always called them. Um, or if you're smart, you avoid them. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, I was Tomo, so there was no avoiding anybody. Um, I was the guy that called in the middle of the night to come fix the rat nest that they created. Um <laughs> So good job, S3. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's, it's the research is like the most important thing. Research, obviously I've got like, I wish I was at home because I got a ton of books I can pull out and show you like all the different military books I have, military history books, uh, weapons books, things like that. Uh, and then, you know, autobiographies by people who are in, um, you know, Audie Murphy's The Hell and Back is a great one because the, no matter what, the, the nomenclature change how the however the nomenclature changes soldiers sailors marines and airmen they all treat each other kind of the same way like i got a buddy who's who was in the air force and we were at dragon con you know and we were giving each other the same kind of crap you know it doesn't matter that he was air force and i was army and same thing with my navy friends and my marine friends so other than you know marine friends when they get angry i just throw them a couple of crayons and they're good and uh so it's it really is it's just like getting the people right, getting the the person, get, getting the people and their motivations right, and and the services right, and then the details of that service right. Uh, you know, just like anything else, except it's like doubly more important in the military because half of your audience, if not more, are people who uh, have served, and they'll know instantly 
if it's not right. I recently read a book that had army ranks on Navy ships and it was just like, I couldn't get through it. Okay. So uh, when you speak of how some things never change, uh, for anybody who's gone to any of the Roman ruins on the forts at like Hadrian's uh, Wall or any of the other places, they were drawing penises back then too. I mean, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm sorry, cover your ears for the kids listening, but but they were drawing phallic symbols back then. I mean, obviously some of it was religious in nature, but uh, you will never convince me that every one of those people drawing those um, body parts were doing it just because they were worshiping some fertility. I'm sorry, Sergeant, this dick pic is religious. Yeah, that's yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> there was, um, I recently saw a, a 2600 year, a 26, no, a parchment from 26, 2600 BC, probably not parchment, probably papyrus, that was translated due to AI. And it was um, a soldier writing a letter to the pharaoh asking him if he could help him find the people who took his clothes at a party because he got drunk last night. <laughs> yeah. you know it was yeah, the other soldiers who did it. You know, so that was 2600 BC. People don't change. The, the whole idea that we're somehow more civilized or whatever, it's just not true. We're the same exact people we were 2000, 4000, 6000 years ago. I, I was just in St. Augustine in Florida uh, in October, and there's a, um, an old castle there. They call it the Castillo. Castillo de San Marcos. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite places outside of that city. It's The city is one of my favorite places to visit inside the continental United States. That is my go-to stop as soon as I get time off because, you know, get that lovely little veteran card with parks and service. You know, federal park services, which that falls under, I go in for free while everyone's waiting in line like a sucker. I'm like, that's right. Captain Garber coming through. Hey, that recruiting office was open for everybody, right? I'm just saying. It was. It was. It must be nice to have those VA benefits. Um, but every, uh, I think it's the, uh, it's the east side of the Castillo. It was all bees. It was all barracks on the bottom floor. And not one of those walls was absent of a dick. <laughs> not one. Someone yeah. even drew themselves taking a crap in the facilities <laughs> of that time. And I'm like, just, soldiers have not changed ever. And I, I doubt they will change. And, and if you're going co-ed, there are female body parts too. I'm just saying people are going to be sketching things on the wall. You ever want to know how the soldiers feel about something? Read the the graffiti on the latrine. Did it say for a good time called V I I X to X I? Yeah, a long way to the mess hall. You know, I've seen it. The Sidious was here. So, so Doc, so how do you think it's important? Because you wrote units that were completely disconnected from from Earth units. Do you think it's important to try to make those ties or, or do you think there's room for completely new? Well, you know, I, be, I believe in, in, you know, being a big tent kind of writer, you know, I want to, I want to attract everybody, but the core of people I'm writing to are us. Right. Right. So I, I most of all want all of us and, you know, and our peer group, to be very satisfied and feel like, I mean, just like, like Jeff was saying is like, I can't even finish this piece of crap because the guy who wrote it doesn't have, he, he's just lost. He has no grounding in the basics. Therefore, you know, I can't suspend, you know, my, my disenjoyment of that part, you know, for the rest of it. Cause it just stinks. 
You know, it's like reading a detective novel where the author struggles to describe the function of a revolver. You know, it's like, dude, that would have been you. I get it. You're not a gun guy. Uh, you could have made a phone call to somebody and they would have like walked you through something. 30 seconds, John. He would have had his answer on the Internet. to read. Yeah, there was a Larry. Larry Korea does Twitter arguments with people all the time about guns. Oh, and yes. Stuff. Some guy posted that story about how he pulled his Glock and thumbed the safety on it. And, you know, and it was just like, wow, you just lost yes. all your credibility, you know, just all of it. Oh, I bet it had a Ford Assist, too. It was one of those special Glocks. There was a, a photographer, a war photographer in South America uh, who uh, won some big award for this, this picture of a bullet coming through a fence that he got um, until anybody who knew anything about guns looked at it and realized the bullet still had its casing, you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, he just hold it on a string and then take a picture. Uh, he just, he, he, there was a hole in the fence and he just put it through the hole and took a picture. And it's like, this is how dangerous this neighborhood is in South America. And, you know, and it was like a 50 cal bullet too. So it wasn't like a small bullet. It was just like, it's like, dude, it's just, you know, whatever. But nice. it, it kind of—I I know what you're asking, Jr. And where you go, and some of it gets into that. There's a lot of like terrible tropes, you know. That you know, you know the, you know the trope. You know, there's a common trope that it's like the uh, the dances with wolves. What was the dances with wolves in space? Avatar, mm-hmm. you know, where you're working with the indigenous people, and I'm going to abandon my terrible like Western. Westernized Earth culture, Earth culture is so much pure, and it's like more in touch with the planet and stuff like that, you know. And there, and it's all of that's going to make make you rule with military operations and all that kind of rot, you know. And it's the same the same like terrible trope that people, you know. I I have like personal heartache, you know, because me and my kind been left behind forever in fiction especially science fiction because anybody anytime somebody tries to write something about what is truly a special operations unit or something like that so few people have a clue what that is because they don't know what special operations are so there's like some selection process where you know they, they weed everybody out by making them run till you know everybody drops you know, or that's what the selection is, is they just make them do physical things until like they can't do it anymore. And they weed everybody out and tell them they're weak and things like that. And it's like, all right, that's that's pretty freaking stupid. You know, that's pretty totally like unbelievable. You know, that's like that's like, you know, has, you know, very little of anything to do with any selection process for for special operations forces at any level that doesn't that doesn't test like the the capacity to cope you know with multiple very very difficult tasks you know uh yeah that's just all like totally ridiculous so you know the same thing that it's essentially always been is you know testing like a man his mind and a compass in a remote place and their ability to cope with their environment and to do very hard, difficult military tasks for long periods of time without food and sleep over very difficult terrain and push them to the physical max. 
but by having them have to conduct very, very difficult intellectual tasks to achieve their objective is always going to be part of the selection process. And being able to select people who can work independently as well as part of the team is always going to be a part of that. And that's going to be especially true. Now, look, I can tell you like, you know, you know, special forces are used to working independently for very long periods of time without any form of supervision or contact or things like that. Now I can compare, you know, these days, you know, I can say, you know, and I hate to sound like that guy, but there are a lot of examples of special forces operations where, you know, there is a JTF or there is a B team or a C team in another country. Maybe it's at McDill, maybe it's in Germany, maybe it's in Belgium, maybe it's somewhere else who is depending upon an A-team in Africa whipping out their laptop to write a concept of operation, you know, as they're launching an operation. And there's somebody in another country who's waiting on a satellite communication, you know, so that somebody has filed a concept of operation. You know, that's not, that's not every type of operation, but there's so many layers of, you know, of, of non-operators who are looking at what the operator is doing. It's really strange. You know, I can tell you there are times where like I would be on a single man, a two man, sometimes a four man and rarely a 12 man mission where we would be gone sometimes six weeks, sometimes up to three months or more with no communication with the uh, the United States foreign mission based at the embassy of the country we were working at, you know, much less with any other higher level of special operations command. It was expected that you were performing your mission. And if they didn't hear from you, you must be performing your mission and it must be doing well. The idea that that is happening today is like that, that concept is gone. The idea that like SATCOM allows you to like, you know, you know, we want to know what you're having for lunch. You know, we want to know it now. That's gone. When we go into this future where we're looking at, you know, individuals or teams being sent on a special operations mission somewhere, it's going to be back to that model. And it's going to be more important than ever that that's emphasized in the selection process and the training for those operators, that they're able to operate completely independently without oversight for extremely long periods of time because the distances are going to be extreme. Yeah, it depends on your your the technology you're using to travel. I know for my books, um, you know, I perform, primarily focus on Navy and so I looked at a lot of Navy missions because they're on a destroyer and destroyers don't determine the outcome of wars, but they do do a lot of secret missions. And I, so I looked at a lot of secret missions that destroyers performed and light cruisers throughout World War One and World War Two, and, and, you know, the Fletchers that after World War Two, you know, fighting the communists and stuff like that. 
And so I model a lot of my missions that the interceptor goes on after those missions. And one of the things that they did was, is like, they'd have, they'd have a destroyer just like circumnavigate the world basically. And keeping an eye on a Russian fishing boat that they knew was KGB and intercepting communications from it. And that destroyer would be deployed for six months, eight months, a year sometimes. And the, you got to think that when you're on a ship like that and you're the captain, so to speak, you're not answering to anybody. You're doing your own mission. You've got a mission and you're doing it. And so one of the things I was really careful about was when that, when the main characters has got to integrate back into the fleet is coming back under that whole, like why, you know, I'm the master of my ship, but I'm not the master of my fate anymore because I just spent two years on secret missions was the Navy calls it secret squirrel stuff. Uh, and now I got to answer to some guy who doesn't know what I did because, you know, it's all blacked out in my jacket because the Navy operates on prestige and they hate secret missions because you can't tell anybody. All the military, it's called unrated time in the army where, you know, if, if you're, if you're operating for an extended period of time where you don't have a, a raider or endorser over you, it's unrated time. So that's primarily you're, you're working with other government agencies and stuff like that. And that still comes up with guys who it's like, right, they went on one of those missions and the people they worked for really liked them. So they, you know, asked for him to stay for another year. So you'd have guys who ended up with like a couple of years of unrated time, you know, who, you know, is as far as like, you know, the Department of the Army is concerned, you know, the, you know. We don't know what you're doing, so we don't know that you were actually performing, you know, according to standard and things like that. And guys who fell behind in the promotion scheme, you know, that's very that's very common, even in special forces where it's fully expected that you're going to be doing those things. It, it still ends up working against guys. Yeah. One of the primary conflicts of book four in Grimm's War is is his new CEO being like, well, you've just been doing nothing for the last three years because your jacket's all blacked out and you're worthless, that kind of thing. Go ahead, Rick, you're going to say something? Um, yeah, I was going to say it depends a lot on the technology you're dealing with uh, in your future history, how unsupervised you're going to wind up being. Um, if you have, like I said, like the thing with, if you have near instantaneous communications, well, you probably have today's kind of military where somebody's always looking over your shoulder and breathing down your neck and to, you know, backseat driving you. If you have starships, but not instantaneous communication, if the fastest way to get a message anywhere is to send a ship there, then you're going to have captains and units like from uh, the age of steam or sail. Well, they're going to, where the captains are basically going to be God wherever they go, because they're going to be the ones deciding destiny. And if you have special forces units, they're probably going to have to be totally autonomous and making up policy as they go along. There's a reason they called it gunboat di gunboat diplomacy back in the day for that very reason. And so uh, one of the things that struck me, Doc, when you were talking about some of the training chirps that everyone throws in there because they don't really do their research on what special forces might look like or what they find isn't as sexy and exciting as what they want it to be. Uh, but you were not far off from describing the trials that a young Spartan warrior might have gone through a long time ago when it comes to testing him whether he's ready for manhood. A knife and a cloak and go out in the woods and come back and don't die. Like the, the ancient equivalent is still there, I think, for
for what what you guys talk about as the training for various tiers of the special operations community. Well, they they all they because they all have a different mission. They want a different product, you know. So there are a lot of similarities in in, in many of the aspects of selection, but uh, but you know, emphasis emphasis on the most basic skills you know, that rely on virtually no technology is, is going to continue for a, a long, long time. Yeah. So I will say, you know, to, for, for listeners, because that's our target audience, and that's who is we have on the other end of this screen, this radio, are people that are the consumers of our product, is having been there, like I, you know, I make no bones that I was just a regular average nobody grunt. Like I didn't go to any special whiz bang schools. The closest to cool I got was being a squad designated marksman. And most would tell you that's not cool at all. Um, and so I, and anyway, I thought it was pretty cool. Was pretty cool. Uh, but when I was, you got a Mark 12. I mean, you're the man. It, it was fun. Uh, they don't trust me with those guns anymore in civilian life for some reason. They wanted them back when I left. I missed the days where you could buy your rifle on the way out. I, I was born a hundred years too late. But uh, one well, of the things that, you can still take your rifle with you. They've arrested a few people for trying. Uh, they caught some female officer mailing it a part of the time, and they caught her when she mailed the uh, the receiving bolt. I think is where they caught her. Uh, it was an MP unit out of uh, Camp Arifjan. Um, but one of the things actually that I, most of that stuff. I mean, it it doesn't come up as often, but it's all on like the uh, on CMP. You know, it's uh, you know it. Uh, down in Talladega, the civilian marksmanship program. I mean, same way you could, you know, go and buy a, a M1 Garand or a 03 Springfield or something else like that. Very, very frequent. I mean, it was about about seven, eight years ago, a lot of Mark 12s were coming up on there. Same with, you know, M40s and stuff like that. So just saying, you know, it's like check the CMP website, you know, if you if you really, you know, want like a, a – crane produced mark 12 they pop up every once in a while yeah um i, I was more thinking of the one i specifically carried as opposed to just a, a same model of what i carried um but uh, that happened i know i think uh uh who was it uh dwayne liptak from magpul i think he ended up through cmp buying like his very like m40 Oh, that is awesome. But one of the things I learned writing special forces troops when I wrote the reservists, because they dealt with regular, um, the reservist unit dealt with actual spec ops types characters, is it is sometimes difficult when you're dealing with people that are so professional that everything they do is basically like a well-oiled machine. It can be difficult to write them as personable actual characters you care about, because when they're on point, they're on point, And it's, it is almost robotic. So I, I do cut people a little slack because I try. That's when I realized I write the everyman because that's what I know and that's what I love. You know, I, uh, I, in my books, the the people who are in that special special forces unit, uh, when you're seeing things through their eyes, they are very conflicted and dealing with all sorts of personal crap inside their head. But later on in other books, you see them through the eyes of regular grunts. And they see them as like robotic superhumans who do all this stuff, and uh, and they're like in awe of them. But you know, having read the book before, you know they're just regular people inside. That's actually a genius way to do it: is to show the internal and then the external. Uh, just because of the nature of the book I was writing, I didn't have the option to do both. 
But I do think that's a good way to do it. Well done, sir. You get a cookie. Someone told me Rick's a pretty good writer, so he, you know, must be true. <laughs> I, I write some of his short content. It's, it's <laughs> phenomenal. I'm I am surprised um, he hasn't won a Hugo yet. I uh, I did that. I did an ODA team for my last uh, for Know Thy Enemy, which is book five, and it was a big deal. It was a big part of the book, so I did my research. I read um, gosh, Road Three One Five, the Special Forces team that was in Iraq, and um, I read the story about the guy who got the the, the Air Force Special Forces up and running. A uh, bunch of other books that I've read over the years, and um, one of my favorite books was by Jack Coughlin, which was he was uh, a Marine sniper. And whether you're special forces or a grunt or you're just somebody who gets put in a situation where you end up in a firefight and people die, it all has an impact on you. Coughlin talked about how every time he shot somebody, he, you know, when, when the mission was over, he, you know, he'd go to find a supply closet and he'd cry for five minutes because he just he couldn't, you know, he had, to, he had to deal with it right then and there and then move on. And so one of the things I did to make my guys really personable, at least I thought they turned, ended up being personable, was the, the leader of the team. You know, he wouldn't hesitate to kill somebody if they were a threat, but if they weren't a threat, he didn't he didn't want the weight of their death on his soul, you know, because they'd killed so many people over the years. It was starting to weigh on them and he didn't want his team to have to deal with that. And um, a couple guys tell me that that was fairly accurate. I've never killed anybody before. You know, I don't really know, but um, certainly seemed right when I was writing it. Okay, let's and Ox give me the thumbs up with a head nod. So I think I did it right. Yeah, well, it makes sense. I mean, you know, you can write stuff like, you know, the Warhammer books, which is, you know, I mean, it's another type of entertainment entirely. And it's it's not military science fiction, you know, and it's uh, and it's a hell of a lot of fun to read. But like there's not that depth of humanity to those to those characters. And it would seem kind of out of place. You know, for the things that we're more interested in, in in being sort of you know future historians and and trying to trying to create futures that would be relatable to us, uh, you know, that has to be an essential element of it. You know, so I'm I'm totally with you on that. I kind of went with um, people that I talked to in real life. And stuff I'd read as well, but mostly the people I'd talked to who had seen combat uh, and their attitude towards what they felt after killing somebody. And almost to a man, they all felt, they all said that they never felt a tiny fraction of much emotionally as when they killed the enemy as they did when one of their guys died. That that was always the thing that hurt that haunted them afterwards that, you know, if they had PTSD, that was the thing they thought about was people they knew dying. They never really thought that much about the people they killed. Is that I think was the, the first thing you feel after you kill somebody, the recoil? Yeah. The worst yeah. is certainly is being in situations and it's very common in, in special forces and, you know, and, and gosh darn it is like this utterly, ridiculous strategy of trying to turn Afghanistan into a counterinsurgency, you know, the, the utter senselessness of wearing handcuffs and getting guys, you know, injured or killed 
because you can't give a full response to the enemy, you know, that's, that's, that's more scarring on your soul than, uh, you know, than, than anybody who, you know, who, who's, you know, trying to do to you what you do to them first, you know, certainly, you know, I was in a great period of time where, you know, we had, you know, many guys killed, you know, it's uh, lost a lot of very good friends in countries who, you know, if we, if we were able to do what we had every ability to do, you know, they wouldn't have got killed or, you know, at least they would have been appropriately answered for, you know, and that, and believe me, that, that weighs on you a lot heavier than, uh, than dumping bad guys who need to be dumped. So I think, uh, and this will be the last thought we can kind of talk about before we wrap it up. And if there's room more for you, dear listener, you got other things you want us to, to ask, we can certainly have everyone back. Uh, I know how to get in touch with all of them. And when they tell us your contacts, you will too. Um, but I do think something to consider is how close to nature each of the societies were. Um, they've done some studies. I know the guy that wrote on killing, although I, I get it, a lot of his methodology on the, oh, they didn't shoot the bad guys has been disputed. It's definitely a conflicted story. I do think the psychological reports on how farm boys who used to slaughter cows that they ate felt differently potentially than the guys that grew up in the city and thought their meat came from a grocery store. Like I think the difference in, in how you were raised as far as your in touchness with nature definitely affects how the uh, combat affects you. Like, you know, if you if you've been hunting, I mean, there's you're shooting a man, shooting a deer, like it's different, but but your mind is already somewhat conditioned that you know what happens when you shoot and you aim and you pull the trigger, right? I think that makes a difference. And that's gonna play a factor with the societies that are sending these people out to war as well. I suspect. Does anybody agree? Well, disagree? You know, I'll I tell you, I, I uh, was a graduation speaker at, at uh, U.S. Army Sniper School uh, earlier in the year. And one of those things that I told the graduating snipers is, you know, you are not like other people. You know, yeah, all the other people who are who are dressed in OCP, they look like you. They may be in your same unit. Wherever you go, you know, you see you see other army people around you. They are not like you. You know, you take pride in being an efficient, you know, cold-blooded killer, you know, and look forward to doing that. You know, you were you you became a sniper and you're in a chosen profession of being the most professional and proficient of killers. The other people in the army are not like you. The vast majority of them are not. And by the time you're looking at things like, you know, people who are, you know, in 75th and or in SF and, you know, Naval Special Warfare and the Marine Raiders and, you know, all those, you know, the Air Force Special Operations community and stuff like that. There are people who have self-selected because they want to be in that environment. You know, they want to be the deadly tip of the spear. Most that they they as a whole are not people who suffer, you know, unduly from taking a human life. What they suffer from is not being supported and being treated badly and seeing people around them injured and killed when they did not have to be. You know, that's what makes them suffer. You know, but people in special operations. You know, that's 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 not the burden they carry that they feel bad about the bad guys they killed. 
And that's my my point was more of like that's assuming the people you're killing are the bad guys. Um, and oh, yeah, I, absolutely. I I know guys who were in 75th and you know frag out and when they went around the corner, it was not enemy soldiers. And you know that's just that's just the fact of warfare, and it happens, and nobody wants it to happen. At least our side doesn't want it to happen mostly. Um, but it does they happen. Like the whole Dave Grossman on killing thing, and you know, and about and all of this stuff. I've never a big Dave Grossman fan, even when he was like, you know, the 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 hot topic at the time, you know, about his about his look at all of those things like that. I I I was not a gigantic fan, and it's again is like. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, we could do a better job as a culture training our warriors and preparing them for that. But when it, like I say, when it comes to people who self-select, you know, to be in the special operations community, you know, they, they've, they've psychologically crossed that hurdle themselves. Okay. Um, Rick, did you have anything to add before we, we get the closing thought? Um, well, I was going to talk about like the whole thing where the, the army went to using silhouettes and pop-ups and things like that for shooting and to try to get more line soldiers to get over the reluctance that, that people normally have to shoot somebody else. And having gone through, I never went into combat, but having gone through that and having hunted, I feel like it kind of worked the desensitization to pulling the trigger uh, kind of worked and, uh, and hunting had something to do with it. Like uh, knowing that what a bullet does when you hit something and being willing to do that, you know, I, I, of all the things that I thought about when I, I went in the infantry and, and obviously, you know, I had to be prepared to shoot somebody there, although I never did. Uh, And I've all, I also tried to get in the police force when I came back you know, out of, off of active duty and almost did it, except they stopped paying for the academy and I couldn't afford to put myself through and live at the same time. And one of the things they asked me was, do you have a problem with the idea of shooting someone if you had to? And like, I was in the infantry, you know, that's what they trained me to do day after day. You know, it's so I, I think I think that it worked. I think that the I can't say for, honestly, because I never went into combat, but of all the things that I worried about that wasn't one of them see see if you're a hunter right you're going to be a big game hunter in north america or you dream of going to africa and you buy one of those you know books that shows you all the different animals and the anatomy and you know where to get a heart shot or a spine shot you know on quartering of different eagles and you're a hunter you study all of those things you know everybody gives you a pat on the back you're you're a good guy. If you're a human being and you study where to shoot other human beings, all of a sudden you're a bad guy. There are words like psychopath. It's just wrong. It's just oh, wrong. I'm, I'm Especially you. if you, you study how to, when how to of the gut world. and uh, skin and, you know. <laughs> yes, do not eat other humans. That, that's the, the, the principle is still the same yeah, between human and animals. Going to sternum, hang them upside down. So yeah. this is <laughs> next stop. Uh, your psych might see this. Uh, and I know you, you do uh, psyche vows in the Border Patrol. So yeah, yeah. I, from the outside I looking in, I'll I say agree. this. I, I never went to any of the cool whiz bang schools. I don't have any shame in that. Uh, but I will say that I was glad people like Nick did when his uh, sniper team pulled us out of the shit, or excuse me, the, the nasty situation when we were ambushed uh, outside of some very dark places in Iraq. I was certainly glad that people had that training because when we called a helicopter support, they were like, peace out, yo. So 
Uh, you guys had my admiration and respect. That's Army Aviation. You're right. I don't have yeah, high don't. opinions of them. Send the no, hate mail. Hanging every time. All right. With that being said, uh, Rick, how can listeners and viewers find you? And we definitely need to keep this conversation going in a round two. Um, RickPartlow.com is my uh, author blog. Face on Facebook, it's facebook.com backslash duty honor planet, or look for the science fiction worlds of Rick Partlow. And uh, also, if you want to find my books, go on Amazon, look for Rick Partlow. I'm the only science fiction writer with that name, so you can't can't miss me. Okay. And uh, Jeff, what about you? How can listeners and viewers find you on the wild, wild interwebs? I've got a website and Facebook and Twitter. So if you just type in Jeffrey H. Haskell, a little box is going to pop up on the right-hand side on Google, and it's going to tell you all my contact stuff. It's super easy. Just click on it. Email me at jeffrey.haskell at gmail.com. If you want to email me, go on Facebook, search for Jeffrey H. Haskell. You know, it's really easy to find. Yeah. You have a theme going on. I'm sensing something going yeah, on. Yeah, it's my name. Uh, Rick, <laughs> did you take notes? You were supposed to be the officer, not him. Come on. How hard was it? Rick Partlow. Ah, all right. I give you enough grief for today. All right. What about you, Doc? How can listeners and viewers find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Yeah, uh, DocSpears.com. I try. I try and keep things up. There's links to my books and you know uh, uh, blogs and keep you up with what's uh, going on in my world whenever I get around to it. And the same on social media, just under my real name, John Spears, and uh, I try and do the same. I had it on good authority. They legally changed your first name to Doc. You're telling me this was a lie. I feel like the world is not true anymore. Yeah, yeah it, it might as well have been. I've been stuck with that one for like for decades. So there's just no getting out from under it. It's not a bad moniker. I'll tell you that. Not at all. There are worse. You're a special forces and a surgeon, Doc. You just needed to be an astronaut, and you could be like that that uh, one guy that uh, oh, that seal. Oh, like that one guy. Yeah, yeah. He needs to take a couple of weeks off for making the rest of us look bad. That's all I got. Seal, brain surgeon, astronaut. Like, yep. Yeah. Slow down. You're doing too much, bro. As my all right, Nick. Probably hey, still disappointed in him. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, that's crazy. right. He's ancient. His mother. His mother, like you know, you you were supposed to be a cardiologist. <laughs> yeah, neurosurgeon just wasn't enough for mom. That's like second tier doctoring. Uh, yeah. So Nick, you came in today as your your experience as both a creator of content with Apogee Comics and uh, as Ranger Nick. So uh, why don't you tell listeners who don't just want the podcast links how they can find you for your your own personal stuff? Uh, you can find me and my company at uh, on the interwebs with ApogeeComics.com. Um, you can contact me through there. Um, you can find me on all the social media platforms at Nick Garber Art on Instagram, Twitter, and uh, on the Facebook. So I'm pretty easy to find. I, I'm like um, Jeff over here. I just use my name. Out oh, freaking standing. You made it easy for the dumb ones in the back. All right. You can find us on our link tree at L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E link tree slash blasters and blades podcast, where we link to all the things, the bit shoots, the rumbles, the Twitters, the YouTubes, the Facebook group and the Facebook page. Our podcast email is linked in addition to uh, Madam Stabby Stabs, Instagram, Twitter and I think, and her email. So you can send all of the hate mail to her. She wants to see it. She will make you cry and reply, but we're here for it. So, so do the thing if you're brave enough. Uh, I tried and she and thought I was flirting with her. And Nick started threatening to shoot me from long distances. So I had to back off. So it's your turn, people. 
Uh, just got to get outside of 948 meters. That's my longest. All right. Al freaking standing. Remember, <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, they are now. <laughs> and you can find us on our website at anchor.fm slash blasters tack and tack blades again anchor.fm slash blasters tack and tack blades where for as little as 99 cents a month you can help keep the lights on or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com slash author jr hanley again buymeacoffee.com slash author jr hanley be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast and i will keep my co-hosts duly caffeinated they will drink some of that coffee brand coffee like it's going out of style by the way links in the show notes podcast grunts links merchant bio that's right you can get 10 percent off and nick is designing some merch starting with some of those uh cute sayings stabby stab normally gives us um she was hiding a Rumor has it that Nick had Taco Tuesday. I don't know if it's true. He's not in the room right now, so I'm just saying it's people. It's probably true. It's probably and the true. the dog had Taco Tuesday. <laughs> with that being said, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For my crazy co-host, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blade Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. And since this is the holiday season, hug your loved ones because tomorrow isn't promised, people. All right. Peace out. I try. I have my moments before they remove my heart at the NCO Academy.